Hi everyone and welcome. My name is Mitch Borsma. I'm the Director of Operations here at the CIC and I have the distinct honor of introducing our guest speaker tonight, Saurabh Amari, in his new book, The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. It was my hope tonight uh, for this task of introducing to Paul to Mary Eberstadt, who many of you know is our Panula Chair in Christian Culture here at the CIC. Uh, she very much wished to be here, but she had a long scheduled dental operation this morning, so certainly out of service for talking or anything of the sort. Uh, she did, however, have a few reflections on the book and some words of congratulations for Sorab that she wanted to uh, share with all of you tonight. So I'm going to take the liberty of sharing those with you now before handing the stage over to Sorab, recognizing full well that I am the second best option for this task. So here's Mary. First, congratulations to Sorab on this new book. It's wise, full of inspirational stories, powerfully argued and entertaining to read. That's a rare combination of literary virtues. The Unbroken Thread is also a fine example of apologetics without apology and of serious learning handled lightly. The book's tone and sweep remind me of the classic works of Will and Ariel Durant, two of the 20th century's best popularizers and defenders of Western civilization, especially since Western Civ has come under overt, if increasingly ill-informed, attack. We've needed more writers like them. The Unbroken Thread is a spirited addition to the club. For openers, I'd like to offer a few brief reflections on the book's argument. Uh, it First, in addition to its sure success in ruffling feathers in all the best places, its thesis has the benefit of being right, right and elemental. As the author says, putting into words the fears of many parents today, what kind of man will contemporary Western culture chisel out of my son? That is a question before every parent and every person who cares about the United States to come. Once upon a time and not that long ago, many people would have answered that creating a better America meant simply more and more freedom. By 2021, that answer has become far from self-evident. More freedom and less regulation helped to fuel, not ameliorate, the opioid and heroin and fentanyl crisis. As Sorab shows, more freedom and less regulation also do not diminish the pornography that poisons kids and wrecks romances. As he also notes, it is liberalism's unthinking promise of, quote, more freedom, <laughs> meaning in practice its reckless undermining of all authority, that laid the groundwork for today's cancel culture. To the extent that we do need more freedom, such as more genuine free speech, it is to correct what license, and not the absence of license, created in the first place. Second, the world needs this book in another sense, because it is an act of posterity. It is a handing down of distilled truths, pursued and thrashed out at personal cost, for the benefit of someone who cannot yet understand them. It also seems that in devising this act of posterity, Sorab hits, as he so often does, on one of the deepest fault lines of our time. Let's call it the posterity gap. The haves and have-nots of our time are not those of yesterday's material-minded world. Today's gap isn't overblowing it. At the rate of exciting people who might fruitlessly try to aggravate on Twitter, today's divide is not only about race or gender, either. Rather, Americans appear split between those who believe that our past abounds with civilizational treasures, heroes, and traditions that we should pass on, and those who disdain and would trample underfoot in rage every last one of those things. The idea that the religious, philosophical, artistic, literary, and other traditions of the West are not treasures is one of the most lethal of our age. That idea has been contaminating the humanities for over half a century now, and it has now brought forth a spectacle inimical to humanity itself. Legions of people, most of them young, who believe that everything predating them is mere and useless social contract. Those people, more than any others, need the knowledge and wisdom of the past, including as the unbroken thread distills them. Confucius, Augustine, Aquinas are all far better companions for the young man 
than the self-dealing hucksters and wounded psyches who govern so much of our conversational agenda today. Young people are being fed lies for one reason above all, because the authorities around them don't care if they find a way to a good or fulfilled life or not. So let's hope they find their way to this book and to other works that aspire to put out positive truths rather than negative lies. And if those who argue on behalf of tradition take flack for it, as we all do, so be it. Cowardice and self-censorship are getting old. The emboldened counterculture is just getting started and the unbroken thread helps to pick up the pace. So with that reflection from Mary, I now relinquish the stage to our guest tonight, who during his day job acts as the op-ed editor of the New York Post and a columnist for First Things. Ladies and gentlemen, Sarah Bamari. Um, thank you, Mitch, for that um, uh, introduction, and thank you, Mary, as well. Thanks to uh, the Catholic Information Center, uh, Rosemary, Mitch, Father Charles, Angelica, for, for hosting me. This is the second book that I'm launching at the CIC. Um, the last time I did one was my spiritual memoir, and um, it, it was under different circumstances because it was, it was in the before times. Um, nevertheless, it, it, there's something wonderful about being able to be after what we went through in 2020 to come back and still have the CIC doing what it does best, um, sharing. Uh, and yeah, let's give them a round of applause. <laughs> Creating a space for, for ideas for, for Christian fellowship um, in, in, the, in the heart of our um, capital. Um, the, uh, Mary Eberstadt's kind introduction kind of laid the framework for the book, so I won't dwell on it too much just to tell you um, as you know, the arc of a book launch or a book tour goes like this. The first time, or for a few, first few times, the author tends to read, and that's what I intend to do. I apologize about that, because at some point, then you hit a kind of zen-like peak where you don't need to refer back to the book at all, and you just sort of float uh, on your own ideas. I'm not quite there yet, so I'd like to share a bit from the, from the book with you. But before I do that, I'll just very briefly say that this is a book that I wrote for my son. Um, well, I mean, he's four years old now. He was two when I... Uh, started writing it, and so he just was basically able to play with string cheese and make letters of the alphabet with string cheese. So he's not at all anywhere near where he could really appreciate this book. But I did write it for him as an act of posterity, as Mary said, because I'm worried about, uh, I, I feel I almost feel like I don't need to describe the conditions that worry me as a father. Um, and it's not like I'm worried that he'll just become, I don't know, like uh, an opioid addict, although it's Unfortunately, can't rule that out in a definitive way. Um, he'll probably inherit his parents' upper middle class status. Um, what I'm worried about is he'll just live a life of zero moral purpose. He's named after Saint Maximilian Kolbe, the great uh, Polish uh, martyr and, and saint who, as most of you know, laid down his life for a stranger at Auschwitz. And as I looked around and, and I became a father, I wanted to pass on something solid to my son, more than just myself, which uh, you know, in some ways, I'm like the perfect subject of liberal order. I can travel everywhere. I can, well, before COVID times, I could travel everywhere. I could work anywhere. And yet that wasn't enough. I wanted to hand on something more solid. So, and in a way, I wanted to lasso him back to the idealism uh, that was, is encapsulated in St. Maximilian's decision to lay down his life for a stranger. And, um, the, and then as well, the formation of authority, of tradition, of religious faith that made possible that great act of, act of sacrifice. And so how do I do, how do, I do that? As a journalist, I'm not a theologian, I'm not a philosopher, 
but I can pose as a journalist uh, questions that I think haven't been um, have been ignored by our kind of contemporary cultural, social, political arrangements. So the book, The Unbroken Thread, is a book of a dozen unasked questions, um, and each of them is explored through the life of one great thinker. About a third are Catholics, but there are also uh, Protestant thinkers like C.S. Lewis, Confucius is there, and some surprising ones like Andrea Dworkin, the, the radical feminist, talking about whether sex is a private matter. And um, I, I do the exploration of the themes through the work of um, uh, uh, each of these thinkers rather than my own uh, original contribution. And at the very outset, I say that this book contains, in a way, nothing original. I'm just telling the stories of ideas. So with that, I wanted to share a bit from one of the questions, um, uh, which is question nine in the book, and it's what is freedom for? And, um, and I'll dive right in. If you don't mind, I'll read a little bit. Uh, again, in, if, you were, if you were coming to a later stage book launch, I would not be reading as much, but uh, I think this is fair enough early on. So I begin, commencement addresses rarely make headlines because most speakers do little more than string together cliches and bromides. But when Alexander Solzhenitsyn addressed Harvard University's graduating class of 1978, his words traveled far beyond the collegiate precincts of Cambridge, Massachusetts. For months afterwards, the Harvard speech was all Western opinion makers could talk about, and not in a good way. His hosts assumed that he would follow a certain script, Having documented the horrors behind the Iron Curtain before making his home in the land of the free, he was expected to sing his variation on the immigrants owed to America. Solzhenitsyn recalled in his memoir, what was mainly expected of me was the gratitude of the exile and the immigrant to the great Atlantic fortress of liberty, end quote. But he wasn't one to follow ideological scripts, else he would have, he would have thrived as a court writer under communism, nor was he in the mood to flatter anyone. On the day, an audience of some 20,000 students, professors, and others, plus a large contingent of journalists packed Harvard Yard to hear him. Dressed in a drab military-style jacket with his penetrating gaze and Rasputinist beard, the great man must have cut an intimidating figure among the Ivy elites. A heavy rain fell as Solzhenitsyn stood up to speak. No one scurried away to avoid the downpour though many hadn't brought umbrellas. After a long and preemptive standing ovation from the audience, he delivered his address in Russian with a simultaneous English translation broadcast over his piercing voice. Harvard's motto, he began, is veritas, truth, and he had come to share bitterer truths. The rain, it turned out, had been a sign of a brooding message to come. The title of his speech was a world split apart, evoking the division in that age between two nuclear superpowers, the one he had fled and the one he had fled to. Yet he devoted the bulk of his speech to the latter, to diagnosing what had gone wrong in the West. He saw in the West an ever-expanding culture of what he called legalism, one that allowed and even encouraged ind individuals to pursue their own selfish ends up to the limit of the law. Having lived under a lawless regime, he knew how invaluable was the rule of law. Even so, quote, a society with no other scale but the legal is one also less worthy of man. For such a society, quote, fails to take advantage of the full range of human possibilities. He saw West captive to a tyrannical notion of rights. Quote, the defense of individual rights, he warned, 
has reached such extremes as to make society as a whole defenseless against certain individuals. Terrorism ran rampant. Late lawyers and judges less committed to society as a whole than they were to maximizing the rights of defendants who, if they had their way, would destroy all rights and society with it. Oppressive regimes like the one that had thrown him into the gulag took advantage too, hiring lawyers, lobbyists, and other profiteering henchmen to advance their interests in the West, legally, and were on K Street. He saw an abusive Western media whose, quote, overriding concern wasn't in serving the truth or readers, but their own agendas. Though the media defended the maximal possible freedom for themselves, they were accountable to no one when they, quote, misled public opinion by inaccurate information or even contributed to mistakes on a state level, like the Iraq war. At the same time, major outlets maintained a narrow corridor of opinion, its boundaries set by intellectual fads and corporate interests. Unrestricted freedom exists for the press, Solzhenitsyn said, but not for the readership because newspapers mostly transmit in a forceful and empathetic way those opinions which do not openly contradict their own and, ge and the general trend, end quote. What, quote, what a surprise for someone coming from the quote-unquote totalitarian East. Solzhenitsyn saw a West where the clamor of intellectual fashion shut out the true intellects, where shallow public opinion swallowed true excellence. Your scholars, he charged, are free in a legal sense, but they are hemmed in by the idols of the prevailing fad. There is no open violence, as in the East. However, a selection dictated by fashion and the need to accommodate mass standards frequently prevents the most independent-minded persons from contributing to public life and gives rise to dangerous herd instincts." End quote. If all this was what Westerners meant by bringing freedom to the Soviet Union, Solzhenitsyn said, then the nations trapped behind the Iron Curtain would be wise to decline the offer. And this was the most shocking part of the Harvard Address. Quote, should I be asked whether I would propose the West, such as it is today, as a model for my country today, I would frankly have to answer negatively. No, I could not recommend your society as an ideal for the transformation of ours, end quote. While a few hisses rose up from Harvard Yard as he spoke, his words, for the most part, elicited bursts of applause from the audience. But afterward, the media and the commentaria he had lacerated went to work. He got ratioed. Soon, it would become clear that the world when Solzhenitsyn launched at Harvard had permanently unsettled his own reception in the West, turning him from celebrated dissident into reviled reactionary and kooky mystic. The reviews, as they say, were bad. The upshot was that while Solzhenitsyn was undoubtedly a master writer and a brave heart of a man, his social and political ideas were not only wrong, but per positively sinister, the product of a peculiarly Russian type of obscurantism and a lack of appreciation for what the free world was about. In so many polite turns of phrase, the prestige press, save for the exception of George Will, framed him as a theocrat and an authoritarian. George Will, wrote, quote, Solzhenitsyn philosoph Solzhenitsyn's philosophy has a far more distinguished pedigree than does the liberalism that is orthodoxy in societies that owe their success so far to the fact that they have lived off the moral capital of older and sounder traditions, end quote. Will railed against the, quote, flaccid American consensus, which was, quote, a study in intellectual parochialism and no match for the Russians' restatement of the most honorable and ancient theme of Western political philosophy. 
The Washington Star's Mary McGrory, however, spoke for many more columnists when she simply dismissed Solzhenitsyn's ideas with a personal swipe. We would be better off, she said, if we stopped grappling with the politics and even the morality of what Solzhenitsyn said at Harvard and looked at it in a different way, as the personal statement of a conservative, religious, and terribly homesick Russian." End quote. What could a soul nurtured in Russia's despotic soil teach a people for whom freedom is a constitutional birthright? Very, very little, as far as Solzhenitsyn's critics were concerned. As he confided to his memoir, to the Western liberal mind, quote, I presume to judge the experience of the world from the point of view of my own limited Soviet and prison camp experience. Could a gulag serve as a school of freedom? Solzhenitsyn, of course, had spent nearly a decade in the gulag system, a system designed to inflict degradation and dehumanization. He used that experience to inform, obviously he, he uh, broke news about it through the gulag archipelago, but he also used it to inform his great novel, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. And the question of the novel, going beyond its historical moment, is how does one preserve one's humanity in, in, in circumstances in which the entire system is designed to make you less, feel less than fully human and where the margins of human freedom and dignity are so narrow as to be almost non-existent? That, for Solzhenitsyn, is the great challenge of the gulag. A zek, a prisoner, can either refuse to succumb to the baser side of his nature despite all the external pressures and temptations, or he can let loose his, that base nature and, do, and let it do to himself and to other prisoners as it might. The one course of action leads to inner freedom, the other to a slavery worse than any gulag because it enchains the heart and mind. So he d draws this out in the contrast between two characters, Shukhov, the protagonist, he works hard, he serves his fellow prisoners, and he ends the day, the one day in the one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, a day in a gulag, actually happy and contented. Fetyukov is a, a different character in the story. It, 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 it tries to take every advantage, scrounges away every kind of last morsel of food that he can, and every last drag off every last cigarette butt. And at the end of the day, he ends it miserably. He has debased himself through the gulag, so that it, you see that even in a situation in which the margin of choices available to individuals is extremely narrow. It is possible to be interiorly free. Shukov, Shukov finds freedom in a gulag by way of a peasant's goodness and natural religiosity. For him, faith in a higher power comes as easily as watching the night sky during a storm. For, quote, how can anybody not believe in God when it thunders, he asks. If there is a higher power and an enduring moral law, then no one can take away his inner freedom. He is obliged not to degrade himself, even if he might cut little corners and to, uh, to survive and help comrades. By the end of the day, Shukhov has his reward, going to bed pleased with his life, even having enjoyed working on a wall all day in negative 30 temperatures. What could a survivor of the Gulag teach the West about freedom? What indeed? As a prisoner, Solzhenitsyn had lived through and witnessed firsthand much of what he recounted in one day. Far from misunderstanding freedom, he had gained that profound appreciation for it that can only come with near total deprivation. 
And contrary to his critics' claims, he emphatically didn't favor tyranny or oppose democracy, having suffered, suffered the Soviet Union's, quote, centralization of all forms of life, particularly the life of the mind, which he thought amounted to, quote, spiritual murder. But could it be that the liberal West, having reduced freedom to a bare legalism and the absence of natural and traditional barriers, was also unfree, only in a different way? This was Solzhenitsyn's early intuition, and the more time he spent in the West as an immigrant, observing its ways and attempting to navigate them, the more the thought gathered strength in his mind. The loss of many barriers against the individual will, he concluded, had paradoxically robbed Western life of its true freedom. An excess of rights had paved the way to a new serfdom, creating a society in which the Fetyukov type thrived. He saw this first in the misdeeds of the Western media. Reporters mobbed him from the second he arrived at the Bavarian home of the German novelist Heinrich Boll, his first destination in exile. Aware of how vulnerable his friends and loved ones were back home, Solzhenitsyn declined all interviews, that is, except with one reporter who had assisted him greatly in Russia. This sent another journalist into such a fit of jealousy that he published a story claiming that the reporter who had been rewarded had brought Solzhenitsyn a secret message from his wife. That was an outright falsehood. It could have endangered Solzhenitsyn's wife, who was then trying desperately to protect the author's archives from the KGB in Moscow before escaping herself, and it jeopardized the ability of the honest reporter to work in the Soviet capital. Yet neither the envious reporter who had written the false story nor his outlet took any responsibility or showed any remorse. Solzhenitsyn recalled in his memoir, quote, every encounter I had with the media in my first days in the West filled me with bewilderment, end quote. Then there was the mean legalism that permeated the West's commercial practices and its social climate. Solzhenitsyn's books were global blockbusters, but he had written them with a moral and spiritual purpose, namely to awaken the world to the evils of the Soviet Union and to help liberate his compatriots. He had put together one day in the life of Ivan Denisovich and the Gulag Archipelago in the bricklaying spirit of his character Shukhov, an outpouring of solidarity a writerly act of true freedom. Yet in one country, bookshops refused to honor his request, request to sell the archipelago at a lower markup than they would books of similar length so that more people could read it. In another country, one publisher kept bringing out pirated, mangled, and badly translated editions of his works. Why? To profit off of his literary labor. In America, one of the largest corporate publishers tried to nickel and dime him at every turn, drawing up staggeringly one-sided publishing contracts in which every risk and even the smallest cost were laid on the author's shoulders. We honor your sacrifice, Mr. Solzhenitsyn, but as the contract signed on your behalf here says, the author must bear all incidental postal charges for mailing review copies and for the production of an index. Most of the sophisticated hucksters who took control of his book's foreign rights, including one especially predatory Wall Street man, were quite, quote, quite indifferent to the literary and political aspects. All they craved, all they cared about was that, quote, something of material value is lying on tap and that a hefty profit might be made from it, end quote. To assert his rights, he would have to go to court against publishers that treated his blood equity as a commodity, and quote, God, how I balk at this with my entire soul. Western-style litigation, he concluded, was, quote, a profanation of the soul, an ulceration, as the world has drawn to a legal, entered a legal era, gradually replacing man's conscience with law, as the spiritual level of the world has sunk, the legal world, nothing but chicanery. 
The various publishers even went to war among themselves over his material, and when he tried to reconcile them, they would insist on fighting to the last in the courts. Quote, the Western court system is drowned in a litigious quagmire, choked by the spirit of, choked by the letter of the law, the thread of its spirit lost, so often affording crooks and swindlers an advantage, end quote. In the West, the spirit of Fetyukov so often triumphed legally over the spirit of Shukhov. Most shocking of all was how, the, how this obsessive profiteering motive even worked to the advantage of communist regimes. He saw this crisply soon after his arrival in the West when a Swiss trading company dismissed one of its interpreters over complaints from a Soviet client. A client had attacked Solzhenitsyn's writing and the interpreter had asked, but have you read Solzhenitsyn? Which was enough to get her fired. And this in quote, the oldest democracy in Europe, independent and free. At one point, Solzhenitsyn was even taken advantage of by the contractors he hired to build his house in rural Vermont, where he settled after leaving Europe. They dragged out the work did a shoddy job in places and stung him with an unaccountably fat invoice. There is something bitterly humorous in this. The writer who had outsmarted the KGB on a thousand occasions, who had survived hard labor in, in the frigid cold, bested by the deviousness of the small town American subcontractor and quote, the ordeal of the Western financial system. Finally, there was the sheer disorder that sullied the West moral and physical landscape. On a tour of Italy, Solzhenitsyn saw the country's monumental glories, quote, covered with graffiti, painted with hammers and sickles, slogans and threats. Police are killers, death to fascist Christian Democrats. Columns that had survived barbarian invasions and Lord knows what else now blared long live proletarian violence, end quote. The slogans must have especially irked a man who had tasted proletarian violence, but worse, was the question these, these displays must have raised in the author's mind. Was this what he and his compatriots had fought for in defying communism? It was this simmering pot of emotions and observations that boiled over when Solzhenitsyn addressed the Harvard grads. In the Gulag, he had surveyed the moral heights people could reach by doing what they ought to have done, despite the pressures exerted by a lawless prison state. In the West, meanwhile, he saw free men and women and society as a whole failing to make any distinction between freedom to do what ought to be done and the freedom to do what ought not. And here lay the philosophical heart of his critique of the West. As he put it at Harvard, quote, today's Western society has revealed the inequality between freedom for good deeds and the freedom for evil deeds, end quote. The two, freedom for good and freedom for evil, aren't the same thing. The latter doesn't even qualify as freedom since it breeds self-degradation. Solzhenitsyn saw this in concentrated form in the lives of prisoners like Fetyukov, but the idea stretches all the way back to the Bible. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin, John chapter 8, verse 34. How had the West come to mistake false freedom for the genuine article? Solzhenitsyn traced the error back to Renaissance humanism and its benevolent hope that, quote, man, the master of the world, does not bear any evil within himself. That hope had found political expression in the European Age of Enlightenment and, quote, became the basis for what could be called rationalistic humanism or humanistic autonomy, end quote. Put another way, human beings took themselves as their own moral scale and, surprise, concluded that they were pretty good, pretty, pretty good. This soon led to the erasure of the ancient distinction between freedom for good and license for evil. If humans were good on their own, naturally so, then an unbound humanity free to exercise autonomy in every realm and direction could only be a good thing. 
Western-style liberalism and communism shared this faith in the basic goodness of the autonomous human being. Both hallowed the autonomous human, quote, as the center of all. Despite their differences over how to free humanity from all natural and traditional constraints, whether to do so collectively or individually, the two ideologies were twin children of the same parent philosophy. In this sense, the Cold War world was, in fact, united. Its two halves were riffing on the same melody in two different keys. It was easy to see how communism's vision of unbound human rule had in practice led to the absolute loss of true freedom, to the gulag, to the killing field, to the torture chamber. The West's deformations, however, were more diffuse and subtle, but no less real. In the West, Solzhenitsyn reflected in his many memoir, quote, the notion of freedom has been diverted to unbridled passion. In other words, in the direction of the forces of evil so that nobody's freedom could be limited, end quote. The only limit is the law, and law exists to maximize individual autonomy up to the point of harming others and sometimes beyond it. Law gives the advantage to a thousand advantage-seeking Fetyukovs, the reigning ideology that prosperity and the accumulation of material riches are to be valued above all else, Solzhenitsyn wrote, is leading to a weakening of character in the West, end quote. Poor Fetyukov at least had the excuse of gulag conditions. What excuse have those who use their freedom to chip away at the hole in the high here in the West, ultimately to enslave themselves? In the decades since Alexander Solzhenitsyn issued his Jeremiah in the true prophetic sense, the conditions he diagnosed have only worsened. We have demolished many barriers in the name of freedom, and the demolition job has left us paradoxically less free. Our market fundamentalism, for example, has penetrated deep into the popular psyche. More systematically, it has abetted the rise of a tech oligarchy that seeks to reshape not just how and how much people work, but how and how much they think, all while draping itself in the banner of multicultural and sex liberationist virtue. Market fundamentalism has likewise blinded us to the suffering of Americans with no more than a high school education in the new economy. Even for the materially successful, there are few, if any, patterns to follow as they seek the good life. Consider my Maximilian. Imagine he's in his post-college years and he's been dating a young woman for several, several years. Is he expected to marry her? Well, maybe. Have children? Possibly. What if that hampers his career mobility? But no. What if he gets tired of his would-be wife? Well, they could always divorce later. What if he just tires of her while they're still dating and dumps her wantonly and cruelly? That's okay too. What if she does that to him? That's also okay. All the profound questions of life are unsettled. Young and old alike lack a stable basis for answering them. In economic life, entrepreneurial autonomy has generated vast wealth for the innovative, but the downsides are increasingly evident. Even the well-educated stagger under, under the weight of hyper-competition. Great acts of true freedom, that is, freedom for the good, require knowing that one stands on solid ground, a confidence we too often lack. Are we too free? Solzhenitsyn would say that insofar as our disordered concept of freedom hamstrings moral excellence and promotes its opposite, insofar as it encourages us to be base and Fetyukov-like, then we aren't free enough. And we certainly aren't free merely because we are unconstrained and unrestricted. The current state of affairs, however, is here to stay, barring a philosophical sea change on the scale of the Enlightenment, and that seems unlikely. Meanwhile, we might ask ourselves, does blurting out whatever I wish to the internet strangers truly fulfill me, or am I taking a perverse pleasure in conflict? Is that 16th hour in the day spent toiling for a corporate boss an act of freedom and mastery, or is it merely depriving my spouse and children of my presence? 
Am I truly free to watch digital phantasms having sex, or am I perpetuating the exploitation of real people and digging myself into a degraded hole? Am I free to refuse to carry my cross or commit, my, uh, commit to any sacrificial responsibility? Or in refusing to do so, do I in fact diminish my moral stature, habituating my nature to the narrow selfish horizons of a fetuchal? Each of us has to work within the sphere of life entrusted to us to carefully discern true freedom from its this seductive counterfeits. Then we might give a new and true meaning to our common aspiration to a land of the free. Alexander Solzhenitsyn returned to his native land on May 27, 1994, following the collapse of the Soviet Union. As the New York Times reported, he chose to land first in the Siberian Northeast, in Magadan, the former heart of the Gulag. And the first thing he did was to touch the bloodstained soil in tribute to the 60 million victims of the Soviet system. He died in 2008 in Moscow, having outlived the Gulag state by 17 years. Thank you very much. Um, absolutely points for uh, difficulty tonight in a Catholic audience for a book that you have Aquinas and Augustine and Newman you chose to pronounce Solzhenitsyn 70 times and when that's I did the awesome. audio recording of the book <laughs> believe me that was a painful exercise I bet uh, we've got a little bit of time for questions um, I will come around with this mic for our um, um, online audience as well for them to be able to hear but uh, questions um, thanks so much for your talk do you see your book as part of a larger conversation or unbroken thread? Yeah, of course. I mean, um, see, that's every author's hope is, is to feed into a larger conversation. Um, it, it is a, a truly mission-driven work in a way that nothing else I've written because it's, it's for my son. I'm, I constantly tell people uh, this three-word slogan, look around you. Things are really bad and the stakes are very high when you have children. Um, so yes, absolutely, I have to kind of feed into a larger conversation. Um, and um, there is an aspect of this, I mean, uh, I see my friend Sarah Charma, the, the audience, we, we did a, a clubhouse event on the book last night. And there's an element of this because, it, you know, traditions are for the most part are supposed to be taken for granted. Uh, you, you shouldn't have to recover them in this way. And so I acknowledge that. I think in the spirit of the book very openly that you uh, that we do have an act of almost kind of a, a moral archaeology to do. Um, it, it is especially painful. I mean, I, I'm, in, I'm in Washington and there's I have so many critics in this city where, you know, you say something like, uh, you know, politics should be ordered around the common good. And, 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 and they'll say, well, that sounds like Franco. <laughs> that, that sounds like uh, 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 Mao, and you're sort of like, no, that sounds like Aristotle, you know. <laughs> so yeah, it means having to go through a kind of um, ideological blockage where anything that could possibly th uh, uh, hint of a kind of political imagination, where things that were taken for granted for you know, much of human, uh, Western political history, is now suspect. Um, it's, a, it's an uphill battle, and so I hope that this book lights a candle for um, a different way of looking at the world. So thank you for coming, Saurabh. Um, my question is about good governance. So um, the uh, sort of uh, Adrian Vermeule camp, it, there's this sort of idea like um, that the administrative state is the best way to kind of take care of a lot of our, our you know, problems with the state of 
culture today. And I think there's a lot of merit to that. Um, do you think that that's necessarily the approach? Do you think that we need to do it more on a local level, kind of like, hey, locality, ban drag queen story hour? Um, do you think it's a combination? What, what are your thoughts? So in the book, I don't go into the administrative state, and I'm not a, uh, I'm not a, a, a jurist or a, a legal scholar. I have a law degree that I didn't use and just saddled me with lots of debt. Um, <laughs> but... Um, I will say my brief for for my friend Adrian's um, concept, it's a sort of, here's my version of it. I don't know if this is the one he would put forward, but um, for some reason or another, whether it's it's inbuilt into the constitutional order or a distortion of it, uh, you know, Congress, for the most part, doesn't doesn't do much. and a, a lot of our governors takes governance takes place in within these administrative agencies, and so political actors who um, uh, seek to transform the system could be very well placed by by um, seeking to enter the administrative state and to use um, you know, this vast ship of state to uh, reorder our politics around um, the good, which is which obviously we should acknowledge is knowable and there are. There are ends for which the human per- person um, is made for, and w- ones that aren't. And so, you, you know, a political actor could get into the administrative state, and there's nothing illegitimate, he would argue, in using this apparatus to uh, promote conservative ends. Um, but I wouldn't also rule out the more kind of organic, local activities. I mean, it's another thing that came up last night. So the questions are interesting, but. Um, uh, Obviously, we should want people, I mean, Christians, to enter politics at the local level. Um, we do a lot, and I think it's, there is a tendency to uh, for everyone to want to come to this town, and and that part may be part of the design. But um, the local community matters a lot. Um, there's also, I mean, not just in terms of how you operate in politics, but I, I find with a lot of conservatives, uh, young conservatives will send me op-eds. And it'll be like, my thoughts on charter schools and teachers' unions. And I'm just like, God, I'm sorry, you're 21 years old. What? <laughs> Why would I care what you think about these? I mean, it's not like, but what you can do locally is I want you, young uh, person who pitched me this op-ed, go pick up the phone. Go talk to the union person whom you think is is, is wrong. And maybe the, the, she is wrong, but go talk to them. And, and also go to the classrooms and insofar as there are classrooms anymore, but whatever, but like do reporting in, in where you are. I, I think that's very important. This kind of tendency to just always, every, everyone in, in on the right just immediately wants to be George Will or Ben Shapiro. And we said so that means that we don't have enough, um, you know, New Yorker, Atlantic type reporters. And so um, I'm veering off your question in a way, but I'm tra- talking about my own world where I think the local matters is absolutely right. Um, everyone, on our side is a sort of is a thought leader with a capital T and a capital L, and um, that that's a betrayal of local commitment as well. I know I veered off, but no, that's a great answer. Thank you. Um, how are you planning to educate your son since he's four, and everything we hear about the public schools is horrible? Oh. Um, the question was, how are you planning uh, to educate your son? Well, frankly, um, 
over the past year, the uh, public schools in New York, which we didn't plan to send our, our, our children to public schools anyway, but they just stopped working. I mean, they just, no one, no one, who does remote teaching with three-year-olds, two-year-olds? <laughs> insane. Um, so we, um, you know, we're, we have our children in, in archdiocesan schools. Um, and, um, uh, uh, I mean, I just got to make a plug for them. You know, Cardinal Dolan, God bless him, kept schools, Catholic schools open. And full time, uh, you know, in person. Um, this seems like a very minimal thing to, to be grateful for, but it's very important. Um, one of the chapters of the book I deal with is the question is, what do you owe your body? And it's the idea that human beings are not um, contrary to the ancient Gnostics, but also their kind of contemporary um, heirs, or uh, that we're not just sort of. Uh, spiritual beings that happen to be trapped in fleshly apparatus of the body and, and could therefore just seek to seek to liberate the that spiritual or mental element away from the body, but that we are fully ourselves within the body and that the body as a limit um, makes us fully human. So schooling that's just remote, whether it's at the university level or, or down to the pre-K3, which is where Max is, is inhuman. It's it's not it's not really schooling. People learn not just by kind of having information transmitted to them over a screen, but through interaction with a mentor, and that's an embodied relationship. So that sounds like a very minimal, uh, but but for now, just the fact that we, you know, we have in-person schooling thanks to the uh, Catholic school system, I'm very grateful for. Okay, next one. Um, here. Obviously, I haven't yet read the book, but if this is a book for your son, why Andrea Dworkin? <laughs> That's a really good question. That's a really good question. Why Andrea Dworkin? The, the chapter um, that's focused around Andrea Dworkin is titled, Is Sex a Private Matter? And uh, I argue in setting up that we live in an age of sexual schizophrenia, where on the one hand, the uh, ideal of sexual autonomism or maximal sexual autonomy that really took off with the sexual revolution is as, as powerful as it ever was, right? Like sex is just fun, do whatever you want. Uh, there's no norm governing it except consent and avoidance of disease. Um, that is the kind of elite ideology around sex. At the same time, we're seeing that um, sexual autonomy comes with very high costs, and that's that's the other side of the kind of this uh, schizophrenic coin, where you have the Me Too movement, which is this reckoning at its best. I mean, the Me Too movement has been abused politically and so on and so forth, but at its best, it's a recognition that sexual liberation also ended up empowering a lot of caddish men um, and uh, caused women to be. Uh, degraded and, and, and to suffer in, in, in the workplace. So the question becomes, is sex really private? Is, it, is, what are, is what people do in the bedroom does it not have wider ramifications for how we order our society? And Andrea Dworkin was a great believer in the idea that sex is not private, that um, if there is there's abuse going on in the bedroom, it ripples out into how the sexes relate in the public sphere and it causes the kind of objectification, degradation of women, she's a radical feminist. And um, I argue, but after John Cavadini, the great Notre Dame kind of Orthodox Augustinian scholar, that in that sense, 
she was weirdly a traditionalist. She would reject the label, obviously. She would be horrified to be next to the other figures featured in this book if she were still around. Um, nevertheless, the idea that, that sex has public ramifications and therefore there's something troubling about what happens can also be found in the City of God. There's a famous uh, passage in the City of God where um, St. Augustine makes fun of the kind of Roman ideology of the um, first night of marriage, where it's not just the bride and groom together in the, in the marital bedroom, but there has to be the whole host of poly polytheistic Roman gods, you know. The, the Venus has to hold her down, you know, Prima has to do this, all the, and all of it is essentially, as St. Augustine said, is that's there to legitimate uh, what was about to happen, which is the ravishing of this weaker creature that feels uh, powerless before what's about to happen. Um, so it's very uncomfortable and, and, and passage even across you know sixteen hundred years, and uh, that that is John Cavadini, the, the Notre Dame scholar, argues that in that sense, Saint Augustine and, and Andrew Dworkin share a lot more with each other than either does with our kind of happy-go-lucky attitude about sex, where there's nothing troubling about it as long as you're just you know seek consent and, and be wholesome about it, do whatever else you want. Um, but there is some, we have to think about what happens there that's, that's problematic um, and to create a norm around sexuality that's humane. Now, St. Augustine would trace what had gone wrong in human sexuality to, to the fall and our defective will, where even if you approach your partner with the purest intentions, um, you nevertheless are overcome with, with dominating lust. Um, and so there, there's a way to correct for that through, through, uh, through grace. And in marriage and so forth. Andrew Dorkin just thought it was he was built into the mechanics of the act were just horrible and and uh, 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 downright wrong. So in that sense, I, I say in the chapter that I reject her because that also is a kind of Gnostic rejection of the body as well. And um, uh, but insofar as they would argue that both that, that dominating lust is is potentially inherent in human sexuality and therefore needs to be counteracted somehow. Um, I think St. Augustine, who's a, one of the other characters in the book, and Andrea Dworkin share a lot more than um, either does with liberal ideology about sex. Thank you. Um, I am. I love. I love the frame of this book. It's. It's. It's beautiful. Um, but I, I wonder whether um, are there particular lessons in this um, that you would emphasize for men as opposed to women, or for women as opposed to men in this day and age. So, were there to be a second edition um, with a letter to a daughter, would oh, that add anything or emphasize anything differently? No, no. It's just that the book was conceived when we only had the had the one child. So, all the all the lessons are are, are addressed to both uh, potentially both sexes. So, there's not a. Uh, uh, it, so nothing different. It, but it's funny, a colleague of mine constantly says, you know, your daughter's going to be mad when she uh, grows up because <laughs> she doesn't have a book devoted to her, dedicated to her, but I'm, I'm writing other books. <laughs> yes. You mentioned something about the, how identity has really been moved into a higher currency in the social media era and it, we've also seen this in our politics as well what in your reading and studies and going into this this new world sort of consumed with identity identity is what defines you uh, what def your your upbringing your social background defines your success or your 
or your current existence. Um, I wondered, I was curious whether you had any message on that level. To me, it's not identity itself that's a troubling concept. It's it's our version of identity, which is so narrow, as you said, it, uh, that um, it's your identity is where you are in relation to various uh, oppressive uh, social contra- constructs and power structures, race, gender, sexuality, and so forth. And so you're constantly defining yourself against what could potentially be oppressing you or has historically oppressed your people from your particular background. It's not entirely wrong, I mean, that's part of who we are, but it's just um, there's a, a deeper account of what it means to be fully human of human identity um, uh, that I think is uh, captured in the Christian and classical tradition that says that um, Human beings have a, a natural end, that's the kind of classical end of it, and a supernatural end, that's the Christian. Um, and that obviously, um, uh, that identity, tra- those identities transcend the identities that you mentioned, you know, that, are, that we're so obsessed with. Um, it's not that those are all should be erased or overlooked. But um, there are more important, more encompassing identities than the ones that we're obsessed with. That's a good answer. Right? Time for one more question here. We'll do. We'll take two more here. And thank you. Uh, I'm just wondering what you might see as bright spots in their American culture or cultures cultures in America or, or elsewhere um, that could provide a sort of basis for renewal or or good answers to the questions you ask here. Plenty, plenty. Um, the the biggest one for me is is uh, young young thinkers, young political operatives in the city that I know. There's kind of these cadres of young people who um, sense that there's something something's wrong, and they are kind of grasping for answers in different places. And I feel, I feel plugged into their circles. Be fortunate to be plugged into their circles. And I, I, I draw great hope from that because I firmly believe that a lot of major changes just happen thanks to elite formation and how young elites operate, um, what conclusions they draw from their surroundings. And so when I look at those, I just I, I know lots of really promising young people. Um, I mean, I, I mean, this makes me sound like I'm like, 50, and I'm like, oh, the promising youths. But, you know, I mean, I'm talking in their early 20s, mid 20s, versus I'm 36. So um, that's the main one. Yeah. Last question. Young Christians. Um, thank you. Um, you speak about um, this Polish priest in the first chapter, and, uh, and you had a, an op ed uh, about the question of courage, the first virtue. Uh, and this is my question. Um, there is a lot that's wrong, and a lot of people are noticing um, that there is a lot that's wrong. And with children at stake at schools, you're noticing that parents still, I mean, this is as high a stake as a, as a mother or a father can ever have, I think. Parents still lack the courage to stand up for their own children. So if not for that, for what? And St. Maximilian died for a stranger. Somebody he, had, yet, somebody he had never met before. Um, and we're having trouble standing up and speaking up for our own children. 
That's a really good question. So, um, I mean, the op-ed that I wrote in the Monday Post is is an attempt to basically, it's a, it's a book launch op-ed, so I try to make a novel argument. It's not in the book per se, but, um, you know, I, I live in New York City, which is not too different from uh, Metro Washington, and I'm constantly approached by parents of uh, children or older than my children. You know, they, their kids are going to these elite private schools, uh, Brearley, uh, Dalton, blah, blah, blah. And they're constantly saying they're absolutely terrified of the kind of ideological indoctrination. Um, I mean, there's one aspect of it, which is that the kids just aren't taught anything as far as they can tell. Like, they just endlessly meditate on, on race, gender, sexuality, race, gender, sexuality, and, and privilege, and, and overcoming privilege, and checking your own privilege. It's just, <laughs> as far as I can tell from these parents, the, the impression they give you is that that's all these kids do. I mean, that's, at one school, they keep a gender diary where they sort of, during the day, they document how how they feel on a gender spectrum. And I, I get you not, this is a very expensive, it's $50,000, $60,000 a year. They, they charge 50K, but they always ask for about 10K in donations through the, through the course of the year. Um, so that's one part of it. But also, I mean, to constantly be telling kids that you're, um, you're sort of guilty of, of a racial sin, which in, in my case, because my wife's Chinese, we also know lots of Asian parents and they're immigrants and they're sort of like especially puzzled by this kind of... Um, um, because they're coded as 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 part of the sinful group, uh, the group that has to do penance, and so they're like, "But well, I just came here ten years ago." Um, um, so yeah, and and but but the as I kind of cynically or uh, in a dark mode confess in that op-ed, at the end of the day, it's the kind of only conservative they know. I'm the receptacle for this anguish, and they're willing to confide in me. And sometimes leak stuff to me, and, and it's interesting. But at the end of the day, that school will lead to an Ivy uh, education. And so they're not really, they will show up for those kind of CRT, critical race theory trainings, where you're supposed to keep the camera on to show that you're paying attention. It's sort of really sinister. Um, they'll show up, and they'll, they'll just go through the motions uh, kind of like the greengrocer in, in Václav Havel's famous essay where they, you just put up the sign that says um, workers of the world unite even though you know you don't believe in it you know that even the party communist party apparatchiks didn't believe in it but you, you both pretend same thing with these parents except in a supposedly free society um, yeah I mean I, this is a problem of our of a, at least a part of our elites where even if they recognize there's something wrong got to get your kid into to the next thing to get ahead and so i make i bring up the example as a contrast of of what it takes to really confront movements like this is something like saint simeon colby who has this kind of grounding and uh in moral absolutes it is no one's right and, and 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 this idea of love that's just so striking in a place like auschwitz so he lays down his life for a stranger i'm not saying everyone should do that and you know Please God, we won't end up in a situation where we'll have to do that in camps or whatever. But at least in this situation where you're, you can be free, you know, exercise it. Oh, there are hopeful signs. Though. I don't know if you saw. There was a parent at Beerley uh, who, who published a public letter. We ran it in the New York Post. Basically, he was just saying, "What is this? You're not, you're not teaching my kids anything other than, you know, self hatred and, and 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 racial agony, and this is not healthy." Um, so hopefully, uh, that ferment will lead to maybe new institutions. Please join me. Thank you, so Rob.
registration outside and do uh, and do book signings out there. Thanks again for all of you for being here in person, and, and we're very happy again to be back doing these events in person. We'll be doing them uh, through the summer as well. So welcome back, and thanks for being here. Go ahead.